Weatherthon 3000. Tomorrow's weather forecast. Bad. To 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Brick of so That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show designer cells, insomniac dolphins, and oral contraceptives. In addition, we'll be joined by Michelle Feynman, who will talk about the letters of her father, the great physicist Richard Feynman. And we'll also find out what alkanes are. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Grokks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. It's, uh, another exciting week in science. You know, it just still happens so quickly nowadays. It just like a day had passed. Yeah. Like hours had passed. <laughs> Minutes, in fact. What do you plan to dress up as for Halloween this year? Uh, I'm thinking as going as Viagra. Oh, man, you read my mind. Did I? <laughs> you know, you'll be so huggable. <laughs> A big blue pill walking around. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, well, I guess that was my one of my choices. I was thinking maybe it was going as the symbolic representation of Viagra, though. Oh, <laughs> you mean a big well? Well, right. <laughs> something solid. <laughs> High vascular pressure. Oh. So it turns out Planned Parenthood brought out Phil the Pill. Phil the Pill. Basically, it was the uh, the round pill uh, walking around uh, Washington D.C. celebrating the 40th anniversary of birth control. This is having to do perhaps with some. Uh, Birthright? Some people may have expected it was the day that the, the pill was discovered or developed, but it turns out it's actually the celebration of a 1965 Supreme Court ruling that struck down uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, a Connecticut law that made the use of birth control by married couples illegal. So the government trying to encourage people to procreate. I'm certainly not surprised at anything the uh, government had done in the past, so... I guess for some people, they don't believe in sex during marriage, so... Uh, well, I think it sort of happens inadvertently <laughs> through time and arguments. This is supposedly a profound uh, anniversary and uh, something to remember for uh, women's rights people out okay, there. Okay, well, look out for Phil the Pill in your neighborhood. Okay, Frank, so how strong is your immune system? It's so strong that I have allergies. You know, when, it, when it's starting to attack even minor pollen f- particles, you have a pretty darn strong immune system. <laughs> so overreactive. <laughs> Maybe even strong enough to uh, fight, uh, you know, things like uh, viruses and cancer. Ooh, I wish I could do that. Then you'd be super strong, and it turns out that if uh, David Baltimore has its way, you just might be able to. Isn't this the, uh, the project that's being funded by One World or something, by Bill Gates? Uh, yes, indeed. The uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has just uh, given Caltech's president, David Baltimore, 13 
$15.9 million to pursue this uh, little vision of his that he has. Maybe we should just give him, get us to give him some money. Yeah. And then I could live in a bubble. But this is actually quite fascinating. His idea is basically that you can tailor designer immune systems by introducing genes to the immune cells and having them specifically uh, produce antibodies and such that will recognize particular uh, proteins and such. And are they going to use stem cells for this? or? Uh, that's one idea, uh, perhaps. I mean, they could also just sort of target uh, existing T-cell lines directly. It's unknown how this is going to exactly work out. Some preliminary studies have obviously done been done in mice, but nothing really conclusive yet. So this could really revolutionize how we uh, treat diseases and uh, germs. Then, it huh? certainly could if it, if it works out, but uh, as it is, it's sort of a long shot. So it's a mm-hmm. uh, high risk, high reward kind of thing. I guess something that the VCs won't invest in, at least for like a short-term venture. Sure. Well, uh, Microsoft can certainly invest in anything they want, and I'm sure it'll come uh, packaged with Windows at some point. <laughs> so. Also a control-out delete sequence. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when things go bad, that's what I think about doing. Well, I'm kind of worried. If Microsoft is funding this, I'm I'm pretty sure my immune system is going to crash all the time, right? <laughs> Some of their work has actually been published uh, previously in a recent edition of PNAS. So you can take a look. Oh, our favorite journal. PNAS. So, Charles, when is the last thing you put an all-nighter? Jeez, I guess uh, uh, without caffeine or with caffeine? Uh, without caffeine. I guess it must have been like at least last night. Last night? How about an all-monther? I, I don't think that's even humanly possible. It should not even be possible in almost any animal, but it turns out newborn dolphins actually do that, hmm. which is quite surprising since it turns out for both killer whales uh, and bottlenose dolphins, they both have these uh, sleeping patterns in which for the first month or so after they're born, they're, they stay awake the whole time and uh, keep their eyes open for most of that time, too. This is kind of surprising because I think uh, most people believe that during infancy, sleep is sort of consolidating a lot of processes in the brain. Right, and it's crucial for growth and uh, brain development. Mm-hmm. But um, what this finding shows is that it, it could be some sort of evolution mechanism for them to survive, actually. Mm. So when they're young, they have thinner layers of blubber, and mm-hmm. so they would need to swim around a bit more near the surface hmm. uh, to keep warm. And that's also the place where uh, they could encounter more predators. Oh. And, you know, by being awake, they can avoid predators more easily. Ah, interesting. Certainly in uh, humans, it's probably not a very good idea. Well, I guess if you're living in the inner city, you might want to be awake <laughs> a little. Yeah, I've seen, uh, what, three-year-olds carry a machine gun. <laughs> it's getting younger and younger nowadays. <laughs> what are these kids doing these days? Yeah. So uh, this was conducted by Jim Horn, uh, director of the Sleep Research Center in uh, UK, and it was published in Nature, Volume 435. All right, more news about our favorite kind of cells. T-cells? <laughs> no, stem cells. Oh, stem cells. <laughs> Although T-cells are quite up there, I think. They're very good for our immune system. Yes, indeed. Uh, now, these are, uh, these are uh, actually, uh, of course, everyone knows stem cells, a big issue. Uh, turns out a researcher, Kevin Egan of Harvard Stem Cell Institute, has apparently created stem cell adult cell hybrids, which could be used for research. You can skate away from those uh, federal restrictions of using pure stem cells? That's pretty much the idea, right, is that uh, if you create these hybridized uh, cell forms, they could be very good for uh, different types of uh, experiments that uh, otherwise you might not be able to do. Well, but this also means we could actually clone ourselves from any cell in our body, is that right? <laughs> well, there, there apparently are some problems because, I I guess when you fuse the two cells, right, some of the adult cell properties try and take over the uh, genetic programming uh-huh. over the uh, stem cell material. So uh-huh. uh, it looks like it's a little bit tricky trying to switch the correct genes on and off. Okay. And of course, the cells now have two nuclei, so it's oh. kind of an issue there as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, certainly they have the potential, apparently, to form other kinds of cells after this fusion process takes place. 
If they're two nuclei, how do you describe these cells? I mean, right. So I mean, again, that is the big issue. Just like how exactly、uh, you know close to nature are these kind of cells going to be for any kind of biological study?、Mm-hmm. So again, it's just another possible tool that could be、uh, used down the line. Yeah, or maybe they could start creating mutant like X Men or <laughs> Fantastic Four kind of、uh, genetically modified、uh, well, you know, humans. You know, quantity is better than quality as far as nuclear <laughs> are concerned. So、uh, it's the American way. <laughs> it's fascinating work. It was published in a recent、uh, article in Nature. And that is all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science and technology. This is Berkeley Rocks. You're listening to here on 90.7 FM, KALX. In a few moments, Michelle Feynman joins us to talk about her father, the physicist Richard Feynman. So stay tuned. Rocks. Well, recently appearing on the U.S. postage stamps are four preeminent American scientists. One of them is the world beloved physicist Richard P. Feynman. Over the years, many books and even a couple plays have been written about him, and around certain circles, he is even regarded with an air of divinity. Joining us today is a very special guest, his daughter Michelle Feynman. Miss Feynman, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Thank you for having me. Recently, there has been another book out, and in fact,、uh, it was edited by you, The Letters of Richard P. Feynman. Could you tell us a little bit about it? I think I think it's finding quite a wide appeal.、Um, he dispenses quite a lot of advice in the book, so、um, anyone from students to parents, certainly people who who knew my father and and appreciate his wit and his wisdom, will enjoy this book. But I think other people who maybe aren't so familiar with his work,、um, I participated in a few panel discussions ac- across the country, and and I was always、uh, impressed with people who came up and said, oh, you know. Maybe I shouldn't tell you this. I don't know anything about your father, but I am really enjoying this book, and and I thought that was just the strongest praise you know I, I could have gotten.、So、I'm just hoping that that everyone can read it, and I think he just has so many wonderful things to say about following your passions and being a man of tremendous integrity, and that comes through in these letters. And it's a very personal look at him, and and I just think in today's world with email and and telephones, certainly we don't have as much correspondence. And, and I think it's always nice to、uh, be reminded of this kind of communication. What are some of the interesting revelations that you've had、uh, touring around the country? It was wonderful to see how many people are still fascinated by him, and the audiences have been absolutely fantastic and so well read, and it, it was really fun to do. 
We learned that you were into horses. Did you get a career in a veterinary practice? That was definitely something that I was going to do. And um, so much time invested in this idea that my father actually set up a day for me to go around with a vet. And it was such a frustrating experience. And I didn't realize that it would be so hard to see animals that were hurt and animals that were sick and, you know, obviously having troubles. And you can't, you know, not like a doctor where they can say to someone, well, you know, it hurts when I do this. Just the frustration, the level of frustration I hadn't anticipated not being able to communicate with these patients. And really, after that day, I was so discouraged that I thought, this is not for me. And I went into photography. Growing up, what was it like to be the daughter of Richard Feynman? Were you always under the spotlight, or were you pretty much separate from his uh, scientific career? I was separate, I I think. Um, There were some expectations that my teachers had of me at school, but I think that most of those were because my brother had recently been through through their classes, and my brother is incredibly intelligent and very interested in technical subjects and a completely different personality, and he raised the bar (laughs) Um, very high, and even though it was six years since he was in the class, they none of his teachers forgot him. So I think that was the only tough part. But I, I didn't get a whole lot of, you know, oh, wow, or, are you related to, and maybe everyone knew by then. But some of my teachers, uh, an Algebra two teacher that I had in, in high school, actually had kind of a, a run-in with my dad and because my dad was showing me shortcuts and uh, was not the way that the teacher wanted the, the problems to be solved. And so I took my problem to school, you know, having done it the way my dad showed me, and, and the teacher said, no, no, this is this is not right, and um, and we're not going to give you full credit for this. And even though I had work and I had uh, the answer correct, um, that wasn't the thing. So this went on for a while, and my father was so discouraged that he went to go see the teacher, and they had a they had a parent-teacher conference. And, and I guess, you know, my dad was trying to be low-key and, you know, not come across as a big-shot physicist and professor at Caltech or anything. I think all of that was unknown to this teacher. And at the end, you know, the teacher said something like, you know, you should read some math textbooks. And and my father couldn't stand it anymore and, and said, you know, sir, I have written math textbooks. And, and um, so the next day, I guess somebody, you know, my counselor or somebody had told the teacher who my father was, and, and he said he was too embarrassed or, what, I don't know, he just didn't want to have me in the class anymore. So um, that was a little bit <clears throat> unfortunate. But, yeah, so I think a lot of my teachers maybe didn't know who my dad was. I guess in the American public, scientists aren't so celebrated. Right. I mean, I think that's why um, you mentioned the stamp, and I think that's why this is so amazing that these American scientists are being celebrated in this fashion and not to take anything away from the lovely Disney series that has been going on for years. But it's high time that we paid attention to our scientists, too, I think. And did you get a part in getting your dad onto the stamp? I don't think so. I mean, there were there were letters that were written, and not just from me and, and family members, but from hundreds of people around the world and thousands of signatures on petitions. And I'd like to think that, that all of that had something to do with it, but according to the Postal Service, they were kind of just getting around to it, and, uh, you know, all of that work might have been for naught because uh, they would have come across him anyway, but it never hurts, and we all feel like a dream has been realized, however it happened. Now, your dad was really famous for pranks. Uh, were you ever part of them? 
Um, we'd go to a restaurant, and he would sort of involve the whole family. If we had to leave a name to be called, he would spell B's and boy, J-O-R-K, because I guess there was a physicist, Yorkin, I think. He would leave these, you know, very difficult names and then just kind of step around the corner and gleefully wait for the name to be called to see how they pronounced it. And when he ordered coffee, it would come, he would say, oh, no, it's for the children and, you know, just for the shock value. So I, I guess I was part of those, yeah. <laughs> Your dad was certainly an adventurer, and late in his life, he had actually wanted to go to Tuva. Did you ever go with him to any big trips or adventures while you were growing up? Well, he didn't make it to Tuva, and we never, we never got to. Um, and we did, we did go to a lot of wonderful places that you know where he was lecturing, and uh, we went to New Zealand, and we spent some time in uh, the Caribbean, which was really nice. And but the idea of traveling with my family was to um, we did a lot of camping, and so it wasn't so much where we were going, but enjoying ourselves on the way. And and we would um, go to great lengths to go to the middle of nowhere. We'd um, if there was a fork in the road, we would always take the side that looked the least traveled, you know, the, the one that looked in the worst condition. And it was just something we did. And, uh, and I'm actually trying to, to do this same thing. I have two young children, and, and that's something that I want them to grow up with. Not camping in a campground, although that can be nice sometimes, but um, mostly relying on yourself and, and staying in the middle of nowhere. It's really nothing like it. So tell us, could you mention a favorite memory of your dad? Well, there's so many. It's 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 really hard to say. I mean, I remember his humor. Something that I was laughing at just the other day. I don't think it's my favorite memory, but I was thinking about it the other day, and it comes to mind the quickest. I was traveling, and there were some flight delays, and one flight was canceled, and then I couldn't get on another flight, and and so I missed a panel discussion that I was supposed to appear on in um, in Chicago just because of problems completely out of my control. And I remember my dad once had some traveling problems and uh, he was walking along in the airport and, and he said to himself flying is for the birds and then he realized what he could say you know that yeah literally it is for the birds and it, it just cracked him up I appreciate his sense of humor and that um, even in a most frustrating moment of being told you can't go where you want to go you know for some airline whatever you know problems um, when you're traveling uh, you know he could find humor in those difficult moments and often try moments. And so I guess, you know, that's just an example, but I, you know, I remember he would often laugh at ordinary things and it really changed the way he thought about things. Your dad was known for avoiding the limelight, but uh, in the wake of the Challenger disaster, he actually made an exception. Did he tell you his thoughts on why he joined the commission? Well, I, you know, I think that he felt that everyone else on the on the commission was somehow tied in to the government and perhaps not as free as he was able to run around and do whatever he wanted. And, and uh, he was really accountable for to no one, in a way. I mean, he didn't have a huge organization breathing down his neck, and he didn't have to worry about behaving properly, I suppose. So he was free to do his own investigation and not worry about, you know, sort of let, let the chip fall where they may. 
someone just because they're supposedly, you know, in a high-ranking status or honors. And, you know, his father was a was a uniform salesman and, and would tell my dad that the person in the uniform is the same as the person out of the uniform. Don't believe anything differently. And that was the thing that my father wanted to impart to us to um, have a little bit of disrespect for these. Well, not disrespect so much as um, just, uh, you know, see for yourself whether whether the epaulets mean anything on this person or, or maybe they got them another way or he didn't he didn't quite trust those and it was my mother that talked him into it actually and you know his, his health was failing and and it was a big deal for him to take away so much time from his life at home and Caltech but he really felt that he could do a, a good job and it was an important thing I remember my parents barely watch TV, and I remember coming home from school the day of the Challenger accident, and, and they were just glued. So um, it made a huge impact just, you know, on the day it happened um, in our family, and, and I know that he was very honored to be able to do something about it. We're just curious here. Um, your dad continues to inspire and uh, fascinate us. Uh, are there any movies that are going to be made about him? There are. Um, there's one right now with Alan Alda, um, and he had such a good time with uh, doing the play, QED, that um, there was a lot of talk on, you know, why can't we tape it? You know, we, it's too bad that this just has to live, you know, to be this ephemeral moment, and, you know, well, we want we want to keep it. And, and, uh, and he said, you know, I, I feel strongly about the play and, and how it should just be for that time with that audience and always different, and it's, I don't want to tape it. But he said, I will, I would love to do uh, another version of maybe his time at the Challenger. And, um, and Showtime is doing that at the moment, or they're, they're working on it. And the latest I heard was that it wasn't just going to be the Challenger, that they were going to um, include more of his life. But it's written by the same, by the same guy who did uh, QED, Peter Parnell, who is really um, a fantastic researcher and uh, a great writer. So um, I'm excited to see what happens. Well, Ms. Feynman, it's been a real fascinating discussion. Um, are there any last words you'd like to add about uh, your dad, the new book, or about yourself? I don't know that I mentioned this, but most of his work that's already out there is derived from spoken words, either a lecture that he gave or a, a story that he told someone and transcribed, edited considerably, and then published. This book is really, it's a chance to read him without any sort of filter in his own words. These letters, they've been typed now in, in for this book, but when I was reading them, there were, say, 90% of them were drafted in his own hand. And, um, you know, I think that these letters, he didn't answer every letter that came across his desk, and I think the ones that he answered meant a great deal to him. And so I think this book, in a way, is sort of the best of the best. I think it's a, a great chance to read him in his own words. Ms. Feynman, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Thank you. And we were just talking to Ms. Michelle Feynman, the daughter of the physicist Richard Feynman. This is Berkeley Rocks you're tuned to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out what alkanes are, plus the Grokotron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week.
And this week's quote of the week comes from the man himself, Richard Feynman. Physics is like sex. Sure, it can give some practical results, but that's not what we do it. And now it's this week's Everyday Science. Ever wonder if there's a difference between human teeth and animal teeth? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. As a rule, human and animal teeth are made of the same stuff, but they have very different shapes. Those shapes are based on the size of the animal's jaw and the work the teeth do. For instance, an elephant is a vegetarian, a very large vegetarian that only has four teeth at a time, one in each jaw and one on each side. These teeth don't grow up and down like ours. See, they grow from the back of his jaw to the front of his mouth. So as the elephant eats its daily 440 pounds of grass, fruit, leaves, and twigs, those four teeth move in a circular motion, grinding all that vegetation to an easily digestible pulp. Then there are the meat-eating animals, or carnivores, like dogs, wolves, and lions. These animals have small front incisors, but large, sharp fangs. Those fangs are used to rip meat and hide and hold their prey still. Behind those fangs are strong, jagged teeth used for tearing and crushing. Of course, human teeth are a completely different story. See, as a species, we tend to eat both meat and vegetables, so our teeth are all different shapes and sizes which is perfect whether we're ordering a filet mignon, a large Caesar salad, or some other toothsome delight. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. Ooh, that just sounds delicious. Well, Ms. Feynman has kindly agreed to join us on this week's Grokotron 5000 the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. In the world of men, there are gentlemen, scoundrels, and most special of them all, the fine men. In the following, there are going to be five subjects, and you get to choose whether they are the scoundrel, gentleman, or fine men. Subject number one is President of the United States, George W. Bush. Scoundrel, gentleman, or fine man? <laughs> um, I'm going to say scoundrel. We're, we're involved in a war that, you know, with, I don't want to jump up on my soapbox, but I think we were, you know, brought into this war under false pretenses, and I'm going to have to say scoundrel. <laughs> All right. Subject number two, Scottish actor Sean Connery. Well, you know, accent alone, I'm going to go with gentleman. I don't know that that's right, but I'm going to I'm gonna say gentleman. Number three, a celebrity of a different type, Michael Jackson. <laughs> well, jury's out on that one, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> I guess he has a category of his own, I guess. Yeah, I think so, yes. Okay, uh, subject number four, uh, fictional character, Han Solo. He's, he's getting in kind of the realm of Feynman, isn't he? Yeah, pretty close. He started yeah. off as a scoundrel. Yeah, yeah I'll, go with, I'll go with Feynman on that one. Okay, great. 
Okay, thank you very much. That is so very fascinating to hear about the Feynman. He's so crazy. But you know the crazy thing about Feynman was he knew not to eat alkanes on his curry. Well, why did he not eat so many alkanes? Well, lots of alkanes are very caustic. They're just carbon and hydrogen. These compounds which are saturated. Carbons full of hydrogens. No double bonds with triple bonds. Very, very fascinating. So eat up now. Tasty. <clears throat> thank you, Master Guru. Always two there are. Ashes they're called, but where are they? <clears throat> if you know where they are or think you know where they are, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you'll feel the chill. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.